Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. It seems inevitable that Turkey will play a role in navigating many of the crises currently challenging U.S. interests, including the outcome of the Syria war and the future of Russian involvement in the Middle East. And at Turkey's helm amid this storm is the populist president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who continues to consolidate his hold on domestic politics while using military and diplomatic means to solidify Ankara as a regional power, trends that could accelerate after the country's landmark constitutional referendum expanding Erdogan's power. Turkey is simply too large demographically, too big economically, and too complicated politically for one person to control it in its entirety. In his latest book, The New Sultan, Erdogan and the Crisis of Modern Turkey, Soner Shabtai addresses how the longtime leader has cemented his rule over the years and at what cost to his country's stability and democratic future. To discuss these ambitions and how they might affect the Trump administration's regional calculus, the Washington Institute hosted a policy forum with the author, who is joined by experts Gonul Tol and Amberin Zaman. We'll hear from all three about Turkey's future. After this. This is Rob Satloff executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. Soner Shabtai is the Institute's Bayer Family Fellow and Director of its Turkish Research Program. A former Erdogan professor at Princeton University's Department of Near Eastern Studies, he appears regularly on U.S. and foreign media outlets, including Fox News, CNN Turk, the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. He delivered the following remarks at an April 18 forum at the Institute's offices in Washington, D.C. In many ways, uh, The New Sultan follows my previous book, uh, The Rise of Turkey. This, in this book, I looked at Turkey's economic growth under President Erdogan, uh, currently prime minister previously, and his Justice and Development Party. And I argue that uh, after having uh, Turkey had witnessed tremendous economic growth in the last decade, that after having been transformed economically, Erdogan's task was not to, to transform Turkey politically. To this end, I said, uh, and I believe this, that I, I think Erdogan wants to make Turkey a great power, and I said... Uh, the path to that goes through becoming an advanced economy, and that Erdogan has made Turkey a country uh, which makes and sells cars, but to become an advanced economy, Turkey has to become a hub for Google. And the path to that goes through becoming an open society and the liberal democracy. So I argued in my book, The Rise of Turkey, that the homework was, therefore, to get to, to that uh, advanced society, economy and open society, to build a, a new liberal democratic order, one that would provide for freedoms for the two halves of Turkey, which I'm going to discuss in a minute, that is freedom of religion for the religious half and freedom from religion for the secular half, roughly defined, and that this new constitution would have to provide for broad liberties for all citizens, including the Kurds. I concluded that relieved of its uh, perennial uh, secular religious tensions and the burden of the Kurdish problem inside and outside of the country, Turkey would then soar, become an uh, 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 avoid the trap of a middle-income economy, and become a great power. I don't think Erdogan read my book. <laughs> so I wrote this one now, uh, The Crisis of Turkey. So let me now tell you what the crisis is and where I think it is heading. Um, the book is really a story of Erdogan's power consolidation in Turkey since 2003 when he became prime minister. I've, I've tracked various steps of it, happy to look at it in the Q&A. 
And I argue in the conclusion that Erdogan has become as unassailable as was Ataturk once, meaning he is the most powerful Turk. But the problem is half of Turkey loves him and the other half of Turkey loathes him. And that is the crisis in which Turkey has found itself as a result of Erdogan's uh, political trajectory. What is more, I argue in my book that Erdogan now wants to shape Turkey in his own image, in a way uh, once upon a time Ataturk did. So I suggest that he's following what I call in quotes, that is, Ataturk model. What is the Ataturk model? In the early 20th century, Ataturk set up Turkey as a modern state, and then he shaped it in his own image using state power, including education policy, as a secular Western uh, European society. And Erdogan wants to use the Ataturk model, but of course, uh, I think he's taking a cue from Ataturk, the country's founder, but he wants to both emulate and replace Ataturk. Of course, he does not share Ataturk's values, just methods. Uh, that is top-down social engineering, and he wants to use state power once again, including the educational policy, to shape Turkey in his own image, very different than Ataturk's Turkey, a country that would therefore become, as in Erdogan's vision, uh, to the core uh, Islamic, politically that is, religious and Middle Eastern and conservative. And that's a top-down kind of Jacobin methods that I think that uh, Erdogan is, is borrowing from Ataturk, the Ataturk model. But Erdogan has a problem. Ataturk was a military general. Erdogan uh, has a democratic mandate, or I should say he had one until this Sunday. There is widespread consensus that uh, election process was not fair. And there is emerging consensus that there were irregularities during the, uh, the day of the voting. We don't know the scale of the irregularities, but that's the, where the problem is because Erdogan has suggested to move forward. He has declared himself executive style president. He said that's over. We're not going back to the election. So he has at best a mandate in question for half of the country that doesn't support him. And that only exacerbates Turkey's deep societal polarization. In my view, the vote does not alleviate it. It actually exacerbates the, the, the divide. And Turkey is split in the middle, therefore, between pro and anti-Erdogan camps. I also argue in the book that it's unlikely that Erdogan will be able to impose his vision that I highlighted on the entire Turkish society. Turkey, as you know, there are many experts on Turkey in this room. I see um, uh, some of my friends and uh, former students from the State Department. We've discussed this many times. This is a very complicated country of uh, a melange of uh, political, ethnic, uh, religious, and social groups. And Erdogan's uh, difficult that it's going to impose his vision on the entire country, entire society. We saw this in Sunday's referendum. A near majority, if not a majority of Turks, voted against it. Uh, and what's more importantly, uh, overwhelming uh, number of Turkish provinces along the coast and northwest representing an overwhelming percentage of Turkey's GDP voted against him. He lost Istanbul, Ankara, and Izmir, all three large cities. Istanbul is his home city. He lost that. Istanbul is where he started his political career, which I track in my book in 1994 when he became its mayor. That was his stage. That's where he provided good governance, cleaned up the city. It is why the Turks decided to give him the benefit of doubt and make him prime minister later on and help his AKP rise to power. Uh, so he's lost that. He's lost, obviously, support of him, uh, some of the key cities of the country, but more importantly, um, as well as losing in the Kurdish areas, he's lost Istanbul, including his own neighborhood in Istanbul. So those are very significant developments. To me, it suggests that it's going to be impossible for him to impose his vision on the entire society going forward. I argue in my book that Turkey is simply too large demographically too big economically and too complicated politically for one person to control it in its entirety. 
Uh, despite Erdogan's efforts to create a crony class of capitalists, for instance, uh, Tusiat, Turkey's Fortune 500, which controls a large part of Turkey's economic wealth, is still uh, wedded to liberal, democratic, secular, and European values. So it's going to be really hard for him to move forward. Let me now look at uh, tra trajectories, uh, which I highlight in my book, going forward. I see uh, three trajectories from here, moving forward. And I'm going to uh, conclude a little bit looking at uh, post-referendum foreign policy environment, which I think deserves some uh, uh, discussion as well. The first trajectory is the current state of affairs, state of crisis. Deeply polarized society in which half of the country, uh, that is the pro-Erdogan wing of Turkey, conservative, Islamist, nationalist, three uh, groups uh, uh, who believe that Turkey is heaven, and the other half, a loose coalition of op opposition figures, uh, socialists, leftists, social democrats, Kurds, uh, Alevis, who are liberal Muslims, who believe that Turkey is uh, hell. And this is the best case of, uh, in my view, unfortunately, going forward, this permanent state of crisis that Turkey is stuck under. So long as Turkey is genuinely democratic, Erdogan cannot continue to govern the way that he wants, and there's a chance that he might become even more autocratic going forward. There's a chance that he might even end democracy in Turkey going forward. That is the second trajectory. The third is an extension of the second, uh, societal polarization coupled with attacks from the right, by far right by ISIS, from the far left by PKK, uh, together with nefarious neighbors that surround Turkey, all of whom want Erdogan's fall from Russia to Assad regime to Iran, could, I argue in my book, could even catapult Turkey into unfortunate and unwanted civil conflict. Uh, that's a scenario I will have to be able to hash, hash out for you in the Q&A, of course. But I really want to turn now and look at Erdogan's uh, foreign policy challenges because we haven't discussed that yet. And I spent a lot of time in the book about how uh, Russia, of course, is the nemesis that keeps coming despite the fact that the Russians are friendly towards Erdogan. They're making up. Uh, they're also deploying uh, troops and setting up a base in Afrin. Afrin is an, an enclave controlled by YPG, which is allied with the PKK, which Erdogan is fighting. Um, U.S. policy also works with YPG, but only where there is ISIS. Russia is in Afrin where there is no ISIS. Afrin is surrounded by Assad regime, Turkey-backed rebels, and Turkey. Guess who Russia is there to hurt? It's obviously not the Assad regime. It's Turkey and its allies. So going forward, I think Russia is going to be Erdogan's uh, nemesis as well as, uh, as, well as uh, most feared enemy. But... Does this mean Erdogan is coming to the bosom of the Western world? He's not, and we kind of saw this in the run-up to the election. Uh, both uh, the West and the European Union became a punching bag uh, in the run-up to the referendum, and I think this is going to continue. That has a lot to do with Erdogan's next step. Yes, he has become executive-style president, but he also wants to, obviously, there are elections coming up. Uh, he has to win those elections. That's for the parliament, his party. Uh, something interesting happened in the last election, if we can, uh, the map is still there. So, um, some of the voters of the Nationalist Action Party, which is a smaller faction in the Turkish parliament that polls just about 10%, uh, voted for Erdogan in the referendum, and some of them voted against him in the referendum. This is an important party. It's one of the four parties in the parliament. It's splitting. The split hap is happening where voters in uh, central and northeastern Anatolia uh, with MHP are flipping for Erdogan, and MHP voters in the coastal provinces and large cities are flipping against Erdogan, uh, that is music to Erdogan's ears because it means that he can uh, solidify AKP's popularity with voters flocking to his party from MHP. This is an ultra-nationalist uh, party. It also suggests that 
MHP's support to Erdogan not only strengthens AKP, but in case of new elections, snap or on-time parliamentary elections, MHP will fail Turkey's high 10% electoral threshold. When that happens, AKP has supermajority in the parliament with as little as 45, perhaps even under that kind of uh, percentage of vote. I think that's Erdogan's goal going forward. So that means uh, ultra-nationalist on foreign policy issues uh, on the European Union. I anticipate uh, major problems in ties with Europe. Uh, he has just suggested he might want to bring back capital punishment. That would end up with Turkey being kicked out of Council of Europe. If Turkey is kicked out of Council of Europe, Turkish courts will not be recognizing European Court of Human Rights as the highest court of the country. Turkish citizens will not have access to that, and I think that changes the political dynamics in the country because he controls the courts. Um, I also anticipate a hard nationalist foreign policy line uh, towards U.S. cooperation with YPG because that is in line with his uh, hardline policy on the Kurds in general to uh, flirt, to uh, make sure that MHP voters that have flipped for him in the referendum become permanent AKP voters. So I think that's his game uh, going forward. I have provided you with so much doom and gloom. Uh, I want to bring some good news before I end. So there's a fourth trajectory for Turkey. I've given you three in my book. I don't want to tell you all about it because I want you to buy it. Um, <laughs> then the fourth trajectory excludes Erdogan. Uh, this is, it's because of him, but despite him scenario. So he's made Turkey wealthy. Uh, thanks to him, this is a middle-class society. That's where he deserves credit. Turkey has grown. Uh, it has better infrastructure. Its citizens live better off than they did before. Uh, the fact of it from my previous book that I liked most, Rise of Turkey, is that when Erdogan came to power, infant mortality rate in Turkey was comparable to pre-war Syria, and now it is comparable to Spain. Turks used to live like Syrians. Now they live like the Spanish. That's why they're voting for Erdogan. That's primarily it. But I also argue that this growth has built a middle-class base, and now they're making some very middle-class demands. And it is the wealthier provinces along the, the Mediterranean, the Aegean, and the Marmara Sea that have voted against him in the referendum. Uh, so that's a good sign going forward. But I don't want to get carried away with the case for a liberal Turkey because, number one, the opposition uh, that's against Erdogan, of course, is an extremely divided one. It's as large as the pro-Erdogan camp, but very divided. It includes Turkish and Kurdish nationalists, seculars and conservatives, uh, center-right and center-left. Sometimes the gap between them is, the wider, is wider than the gap between them and Erdogan. That's, that's a challenge. But there's a bigger challenge. To go back to uh, uh, the leadership issue, uh, the opposition lacks a charismatic leader. Uh, conservative Islamist Turks have their own Ataturk, in quotes, that is Erdogan. But the real Ataturk, of course, is dead. And that is the challenge for the other half of Turkey that wants to oppose Erdogan. And I think until that, at the day that such a man or woman emerges, who can make a case for a liberal Turkey, a liberal Turkey that would have a constitution that would provide freedom of religion and freedom from religion simultaneously, that would provide broad liberties for all, individual liberties, including cultural liberties for all, as including the Kurds. Until that moment comes, I remain deeply worried about uh, Turkey's future. But I do uh, think that while liberal Turkey remains a distant dream, it is plausible given the economic transformation that Turkey has uh, gone under Erdogan. So it's Perhaps thanks to him that I'm going to write my next book as well. So uh, watch this space. And thank you, everybody, for coming. I appreciate it. That was Soner Shabtai. Next, we'll hear from Gonal Toll. She's the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Center for Turkish Studies and an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies. When I picked up the book, um, the first thing came to my mind was 
which sultan? <laughs> so I think at this point, uh, after Sandy's referendum, many of us can live with um, Suleiman the Magnificent, who was a reformer. But what about <laughs> uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid, who was a truly authoritarian ruler? Um, I think the book does a great job of opening um, a window into Erdogan's psyche. And through telling his personal narrative, and this is a narrative of victimhood, which resonates very well among his constituency and actually beyond, um, it's showing us the interplay, the interaction between the founding ideology, Kemalism, and the reactions to it. So that's why I particularly enjoyed reading the chapters on Kurdish nationalism and Islamism, both reactions to, to the Kemalist ideology. But I think Turkey right now lives in a post-Kemalist and post-Islamist era. And one would expect this era to, to embrace liberal values because both Kemalism and, and Islamism, they're both radical authoritarian ideologies. So this post-Kemalist and post-Islamist era is not really embracing uh, liberalism, liberal values, and the opposite is actually happening. As, Omar, uh, as Sonar mentions um, in the book, um, there is now a growing middle class in Turkey. So this is striking because at a time when there is a growing middle class in Turkey, they are not really demanding middle class values. Instead, there is a growing authoritarianism. And I think there is, it's because there is something inherently authoritarian in Turkish political culture. Uh, and some might blame me for being an essentialist, but, but I believe that that is really, um, that, is, that lies at the heart of, of, of the issue here. And I think the original sin of Turkey's political culture is um, the loss of the, the statist ideology. I mean, the state occupies a very unique place in the Turkish psyche. Uh, development, uh, rebuilding the society, everything has been done uh, through state. Uh, and even uh, the bourgeois was created by the state itself. Uh, and that's why we have a middle class. That's why we have a business class that's not really standing up uh, against Erdogan's authoritarian policies in the 21st century. Instead, many are aligning with, with, uh, with the government. So that loss of bourgeoisie, I think, starting from, from the, the late 19th century uh, and the rebuilding of the bourgeoisie by the state itself, um, I think that was problematic. And, 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 and again, I think that explains um, the state of Turkish democracy at the moment and, and the people who are uh, supporting Erdogan. Because I think on Sunday, going back to the Islamism versus uh, Kemalism or secularism debate, I think the people who voted on Sunday uh, in favor of the referendum, the 50%, they were not voting for, for Islamism. And those who were opposed to it, uh, they were not uh, obviously entirely Kemalist either. Uh, so there's something else going on here, uh, and, and, and the 50% that voted yes on Sunday, they just do not mind authoritarianism. Um, at, of course, this is, this is a very dark picture, so where do we go from here? And I'm uh, a bit optimistic about Sunday's um, results, because I think um, 
the slim, the razor-thin majority that he captured on Sunday gives me hope. And at the end, electoral politics will, will play a role. Um, but I think more than that, of course, we don't know um, what his Erdogan's strategy will be moving forward. But I believe, um, despite his victory, he has lost ground. He has lost ground within his own constituency. He lost all major cities, including Istanbul, which is a very important place. He launched his political career in Istanbul, and he hasn't lost since mid-1990s. So the fact that he lost Istanbul is very telling. Um, and, and some of his base, especially the, the educated urban uh, base, uh, I don't think they are 100% happy with his uh, authoritarian tendencies. Um, and also, he, in the run-up to the referendum, he, um, he played to the nationalists. He, his main strategy was galvanizing the nationalist vote. So he employed this very uh, ultra-nationalistic rhetoric. And yet, I think that strategy didn't pay off. He could not be able to mobilize the nationalist base as much as he wanted to. Uh, and instead, he increased his votes in, in, in the Kurdish region compared to the November elections, uh, which is surprising. He increased, uh, of course, it's, uh, right now uh, it's, it's very fluid. It's very difficult to be sure about the numbers. But what we're hearing from, especially from local journalists, is that hundreds of thousands of people uh, 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 the, the ruling party, the AKP, increased its votes by uh, around 400,000, which is almost 1%. Um, and, and he, I, th I think Erdogan took a note of that. And in his victory speech, uh, sorry, the one before that on the day of, of, of the referendum, uh, he said that we increased our votes in, in, in the Kurdish region. So if he really wants to return the favor, that I think that is good news. So instead of aligning with the nationalists, this time he might have to recalibrate, recalibrate his strategy and uh, maybe work with the Kurds. And that could mean, and I know my, my friend and my colleague here, Amberin, disagrees with me, but uh, he might go back to the negotiations, resume the peace talks with the Kurds. Uh, of course, if he choose to play to the instead of aligning with the nationalists, uh, working with, with the Kurds. So that is good news. That would be good news, not only domestically, also uh, the Turkish economy has been hit hard by, by, by terrorist attacks. So that would be good news for, for economy as well, because I think the economic downturn is going to impact um, uh, his popularity as well. Uh, so, so and, and also that would make some room to maneuver uh, for Ankara in Syria, and that, that, that would also remove some of the tension um, from Turkey-U.S. relations um, as well. Um, so I'm, I would like to be optimistic, uh, but, but on the other hand, uh, I think this is, knowing that he's a pragmatic leader um, gives me hope. But yesterday, uh, I was, there was a panel at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and one of my colleagues uh, mentioned that He's always been a pragmatic. We've all, always known him as a pragmatic leader. But he's been in power for so long uh, that, that he's become the state himself. 
Uh, and that was the point that I was trying to make, that statist ideologies uh, captured him now. So now he's not that pragmatic leader that, that uh, we always thought he was. And instead, he's going to be more ideological. So he's going to have those ideological reflexes, which might prevent him working with, with uh, the Kurdish nationalists. So um, it's difficult to make predictions uh, when it comes to Turkey. Might be a little bit easier now that <laughs> we have a, officially we have a presidential system and a textbook authoritarian country. Uh, but still, when it comes to Erdogan, um, it's very difficult uh, to, to, to say what his next move is going to be, but that uh, 1%, that thin margin, uh, gives me hope. That was Gonal Toll, recorded at our April 18 Policy Forum in Washington, D.C. Next, we'll hear from Amberin Zaman. She's a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center's Middle East program. A veteran journalist, she writes for Al Monitor and the independent Turkish news portal Daiken, following 15 years as the Turkey correspondent to The Economist. In terms of yesterday's results, I think that it was, you know, in Turkish, yes is evet, no is hayır, this was havet. <laughs> and that was probably the least bad result we could have had in some respects, given that we all assumed that Erdogan would win uh, this uh, referendum. So the, the majority he has is, is not really much of a majority. It's razor thin, as my colleagues pointed out, which means in turn that he can't really bask in the glory of this huge, you know, popular mandate that he was handed by the adoring Turkish people. On the other hand, he's saddled with all the responsibility of power because he did win, and now he has this um, baby in his lap. Uh, so where will things go from here? First of all, this doesn't kick in until November 3rd, uh, 2019, technically. So between now and then, you know, what will happen, I'm sure, is weighing heavily on his mind. As my colleague said, he lost Istanbul. That's huge, which in turn suggests that his grassroots organization were not really working very hard. Uh, and I'm, I think that as soon as he gets invited to lead the party again, which is one of the provisions of this new system that kicks in immediately, as soon as the uh, results are made official, he'll set about, I think, doing a huge sort of a shake-up within his own party. And in doing so, probably generating a fresh batch of disgruntleds, you know, uh, adding to this big pile that already exists. Uh, so that's not going to, I think, work that well for him necessarily, depending on where those disgruntleds are channeled, whether they can uh, assemble, coalesce around a leader. And uh, people like Meral Akshenar leap to mind of the MHP. It's too early to say yet. I think it's probably too wildly optimistic to expect all the forces aligned against him to unite uh, because we're looking at Meral Akshenar, who goes berserk when she sees the Kurdish flag raised in Kirkuk to uh, Selatin Demirtas. Uh, so very difficult. But here's the thing. For the first time since the 1980 coup, I think the legitimacy of Turkish democracy globally has not been questioned uh, in this way. I think that's a big change. It ought to worry uh, President Erdogan. 
there's, uh, you know, the way this uh, referendum is being framed in the international press is all about uh, fraud, about um, irregularities. I think the OSCE report, and I, God knows I've followed a lot of uh, OSCE uh, press conferences when I was living in Armenia, uh, and those elections were really bad, yet what they said yesterday, I was quite taken aback. I've never heard them sound this harsh before. So uh, I'm imagining that President Erdogan is feeling intensely grateful to President Trump. I'm very puzzled by why President Trump would, you know, uh, give him that, being that he knows how desperate he was for that stamp of legitimacy, and you would have thought that uh, the United States would have leveraged that. So what happens next? Because it's so thin, this majority, you know, we can't really talk about a stable situation. My colleagues described why. This in turn means that Erdogan will continue to instrumentalize foreign policy, which of course bodes ill for the U.S.-Turkish relationship and the U.S.-EU relationship. It also means that in order to deflect attention away from all these um, big question marks about the legitimacy of the election, of why he lost Istanbul, etc., he may embark on some uh, crazy adventures. Uh, he may decide that it's time to attack Talabiyat uh, in northern Syria or maybe dive into Sinjar in Iraqi Kurdistan. We simply uh, don't know. But um, I think that the good news is really that, you know, um, despite all the adversity, with all my colleagues, the most articulate uh, journalists who could have, you know, put forward the case the most uh, effectively against this referendum in jail, with Selatin Demirtas, thousands of Kurdish uh, politicians in jail, the, the fact that the government hogged all the airways, despite all the adversity in short, that, you know, we should have this result is extraordinary and points, I think, to the strength of civil society. And I think also it shows that um, Turkish, Turkish society is maturing. In the old days, people would sit back, fold their arms and say, well, the army will come to the rescue. Well, that's not a given anymore. You know, it falls upon individual Turks to sort of fight the fight. And I think that's uh, very good news. Uh, and I think this is by no means over. Turkish democracy remains very much a work in progress. I think to some extent the Arab Spring was triggered by Turkey, by Erdogan, you know, challenging the establishment, the army, but then it sort of came full circle and now he's more like them. But then you had this result with people, you know, pushing back. I think people will continue to watch Turkey. Uh, I'm proud of my country and I'm proud of you, Sana, for this book. This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music